I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. Today, we're diving into two things that might seem worlds apart, workforce development and cultural preservation. But these two things actually share something in common, the cloud. The cloud plays a key role in helping organizations advance their missions. Our guests today have inspiring stories of how the cloud can really change the way organizations think about the future. Before we jump into our guests, I want to start with a personal story that I think most can relate to. Have you ever looked at a photo album that's been passed down from generation to generation? I recently put together a slideshow with some of my family's old pictures. They were taken and developed well over 50 years ago, and many of them were still in good shape, but the paper they were glued to, it was brittle and crumbling. It made me sad to think that the photos themselves could disappear with time. So guess what I did? You totally scanned them. Yeah, (laughs) that is exactly right. And then I stored the files in the cloud and shared the folder with my family. These are photos that would have continued to disintegrate over time. But now with technology, we can preserve history for generations to come in an entirely new way. And this type of project is exactly what the National Museums of Kenya embarked on. The NMK hosts one of the largest records of human cultural evolution in the world. They house precious, ancient, one-of-a-kind artifacts that date back to the beginning of humanity. With the help of Digital Divide Data, a nonprofit, Amazon Web Services, and Intel, the NMK wanted to digitize their collection in order to make it visible and accessible to the world for exploration and research. In phase one of this project, Digital Divide Data, AWS, and Intel digitized 10,000 of NMK's most valuable artifacts from the Nairobi National Museum. In addition to this really cool cultural preservation angle, there's an equally important story to tell about workforce development. In the process of working with NMK, Digital Divide Data was able to upskill the existing staff, giving them access to new resources and tools to teach them cloud skills along the way. Listen in to Ray's conversation with Samir Reyna, president of Digital Divide Data. Can you tell me how your relationship with the National Museum of Kenya got started and give us an overview of what the project was or is, because it's ongoing? Oh, just a bit about the National Museum of Kenya, they host one of the largest collections of uh, human cultural evolution in the world. And their collections are, you know, record of Homo sapiens evolution and ancestry. We were very keen to see how we could help them in terms of making sure that their collections remain relevant for you know, the next 20 to 50 years. And when we started talking to them, we realized that most of their collections are analog. Uh, They're basically physical collections, physical papers, physical records. And we felt that we could offer a lot of value by moving the collections from an analog space to a digital space. And that's how the conversation started. How many artifacts are we talking about here? How many were you working to digitize and to catalog? And what did that process look like? Was it taking photos, 3D images? How did that work? So there are a couple of elements towards digitization, taking 360 degrees photos and putting them up from a two-dimensional perspective. We used special technology for 3D and we got in you know, people who were experts in doing 3D photography for archaeology. Uh, we flew them in from London to help us with the project. So they had special equipment for 3D parts. So these are the more obvious ones. The more, I would say, deeper connections are when you're trying to create a story around that particular object. So uh, digitization also includes digitizing the field notes, digitizing the geospatial locations, doing the terrain mapping, 
and basically connecting the dots that, okay, if this is an artifact, what is the story? What is the history? Who found it? Where was it found? What are the field notes? What are the technical notes that archaeologists took at the site? It's basically stitching together this whole story from the perspective of field notes, text, photography, geospatial mapping, 3D mapping, those types of things. So each 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 artifact that we focused on was looked at it from different perspectives. And then obviously the museum who museum people who were the experts helped us stitch together the story. And the end goal being, you know, creating a virtual museum and an interactive website where these collections can be hosted uh, for the audiences. This is so cool. And I want to break it down a little bit more because I think that this is when technology is almost at its best is when it's really opening up knowledge to the general public. And that's exactly what this project is doing primarily in two ways. So let's start with the first part of your story, the digitizing and archiving ancient artifacts to preserve them. In so doing, you're also making history more accessible to the public. People don't have to be in the National Museum of Kenya to get a sense of its collection and to learn about its exhibits and to really interact with the history that they have stored there. And these are priceless artifacts. So can you talk about how technology is really changing the way that humans interact with each other, but also with our own history? Yes, this was actually the most exciting part of the project for us was how to take a collection that had, you know, very limited reach uh, from the perspective of we actually only were able to access these collections by being physically at the museum and uh, you know, taking this to the next step, both in terms of preservation of these collections, as well as making them accessible. But we definitely think that uh, technology is the way for us to make these type of collections, uh, you know, very relevant, very accessible, and easily consumable as well. This has been a very successful use case. And we're seeing that already that, you know, once we've launched the website, the museum has been getting a lot of inquiries. They've opened it up to researchers who could not travel to Africa to access the collections. And we expect to build on this in the next couple of years. What phase are you in now and how many artifacts have been digitized and archived and made public? Our first sort of milestone in phase one is we digitized 10,000 of the most relevant artifacts in the archaeology and paleontology collection. Uh, The next phase is to take it from 10,000 to 100,000 of the most relevant artifacts. That would be phase two. And that's the phase that we are undertaking right now in uh, 2019-2020. The total number of specimens that are there in the collection is close to about 1 million. The project is really amazing and not just because it's preserving history and really allowing us to interact with it and touch it and observe it and learn from it in many different ways, but also because of the second part of the story. And it's about how technology can provide training for new career opportunities around the world. So as you mentioned, Digital Divide Data worked with the museum staff to give them new cloud-based technology skills and uh, more opportunities for professional growth. Can you tell me more about this part of the project specifically? How many museum staff did you train and what was that process like? Workforce development has been a key part of our mission. But even for this project, we looked at it from a couple of different perspectives. One was using this opportunity to train not just the museum staff on how to use AWS, but also to train our own teams 
to become SysOps certified, DevOps certified, to be able to manage the migration of the infrastructure to the AWS platform and then to maintain it going forward. So there were a couple of these, I would say, auxiliary benefits that have carried through into 2019, 2020. From the museum side, we had trained about 20 of their staff to understand how to manage technology because we'd upgraded their IT platform. And then from our team's perspective, this actually this project actually gave us the path forward towards training our own team. So we partnered with AWS to train 30 people in 2018-2019 on using the AWS cloud. We got them certified. And these are primarily, like I mentioned, our associates have basic computer literacy skills. So it was remarkable because we took them from basic computer literacy to having them understand networking 101 and then cloud 101 and then on the AWS platform. Out of the 30 people, 29 of them passed the exam at the first attempt. For us, that was mind-blowing because you know, you, you know, you're taking a cohort and a skill set that's you know very basic entry-level skill set. And then over a span of six months through in- intensive training and coaching, they transform into you know, AWS certified graduates. So that was sort of one of the key outcomes from this project was how can we leverage these latest technologies and be able to deconstruct the program and teach them to smart people who don't have access to these technologies. And in fact, we've taken the program forward. At this stage, we have close to about 90 associates that are trained in AWS technologies and certified in sysops or DevOps or even in solutions architect level. What role do you think the cloud will play in the future preservation of culture? And how will projects like this one continue to develop the workforce across the globe? I I think for museums to stay relevant, they have to be more accessible, uh, both from a research perspective as well as from an experiential perspective for, uh, you know, for the broader market. And we felt the cloud is the most efficient and effective way to be able to tell these stories at a digital level using digital experiences and how content is consumed today. So we think, you know, this is the model for the future. In fact, some of the other projects that we've started doing have pretty much followed this template, moving things from physical space to a digital space. So from preserving some of the oldest clues we have about humanity's past to reskilling the museum staff, the cloud is changing the way organizations and the general public think about the future. So that was Kenya. But now, let's go to space. Sorry, had to do it. Exploring the moon, going to Mars, astronauts. Ask just about anyone in the US about space exploration, and the first thing that comes to mind is usually NASA. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration, AKA NASA, has a special division called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. JPL is a federally funded research and development center located in California. The work NASA JPL does isn't like your average day job. The projects the engineers and scientists get to work on require some serious curiosity and innovation. They're pushing the boundaries of science every day. Finding the right people with the right skills and the right mindset to work at JPL isn't easy, but the cloud is changing the way scientists can do their work. Our colleague Randy Larson chatted with Tom Soderstrom, IT Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at NASA JPL, to talk about how they continue to hire the brightest minds in technology. 
Can you set the stage by explaining what it is you and your lab are doing and what you're responsible for? In simple terms, it's really about envisioning the future of IT. So we look out, uh, we surf technology waves, as we call them, and we want to figure out what's coming so that we can make the people who put the rovers on Mars and who are trying to detect life out there more productive. And uh, so what we do is we test these things to see if it pays dividends. The real key is hands-on trying to solve a problem using the emerging technology. So we keep rejuvenating ourselves all the time. JPL's mantra is to dare mighty things and also that the stars are calling, so we must go. So that's why we do what we do. There are currently six technology waves that we are surfing. Given that we're in Los Angeles, the surfing metaphor <laughs> works pretty well. I'm a terrible surfer, but I do know how to surf technology waves. And there are six waves, and they build into this giant tsunami that we call built-in intelligence everywhere. And many of these incorporate the things that we see as the sweet spot, which is the Internet of Things devices, including wearable computing, your watches and devices in our clean rooms, etc. Very advanced analytics, so you can figure out what's going on as the data is being collected by all these devices. And then, of course, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the digital assistance that makes sense out of all this data and uh, handle it in the background. Now, the work happens in the cloud all the time, and that's really one of the key things for us. We can experiment much, much faster because we have a place to do it in with infinite computing and infinite storage as far as we're concerned. Another key enabler is open source. But it really is about envisioning where IT is going and trying to make it happen so that people can use it. And of course, NASA relies on the brightest minds to advance its mission of exploring space and protecting Earth. Talk about the current environment in terms of the talent pipeline. The pipeline is really a challenge for us to get the trained uh, workforce to enter JPL and NASA so that they have hands-on experience. JPL is a hands-on place. We build robots, we build spacecraft, we manage them, program them. Uh, and of, of course, it's all about science and uh, engineering and technology. So how do we give them hands-on experiment? So we want these folks that come in trained as much as possible, caring about space as much as possible, and of course, intensely curious we take in about 800 interns every summer, and many of those become early career hires at JPL. So that's how we manage the pipeline. But it is a challenge because, of course, we compete with other big companies out here on the West Coast. Like, But we are trying to come up with innovative ways of attracting the right workforce that have this curiosity and hands-on interest and giving them a chance to work at JPL. Okay, so you're not just looking for students with prior training or innate talents in science, tech, engineering, or math, but really smart students in whom you see potential. Yes. I would say if you wanted to describe the perfect individual at JPL, by the way, there is no one perfect individual. The real magic is that there are so many different uh, skill sets that all work together. But I would say it's somebody who is curious, a curious tinkerer who wants to attempt to do impossible things. That is you know, what JPL is for, to do these things that have never been done before. And people who are interested in helping humanity in space and also on Earth. We have a lot of satellites circling the Earth, looking back, trying to measure the water, predict earthquakes, predict tsunamis. That happens as well as searching deep space. Oh, by the way, of course, these folks must like to work with others. 
because no one person has the skill set to do all of these things. So not just smart students, but smart students who want to make a difference and who are not afraid to get their hands dirty with hardware and software. And how has that played out in practice? Well, let me give you an example. So the other thing we do at JPL is get ideas from the people who work there. So we have something we call Pitch Day. So one of the ideas at a JPL Pitch Day was to create something we call a robotic ambassador. So we build robots. Uh, these robots are very, very large, and they, you know, they drive the surface of Mars. But how do you get a person to be interested in doing that? What if we created a robotic ambassador that could be used by high schools and built by high schools? So how would we do that? We had no money, didn't have the skills to do it. Rover builders were busy building rovers. We didn't have the space to build it or the design. We didn't have the tool to make it. So what could possibly go wrong with that scenario? What we decided to do is to do it anyway. So to build this robotic ambassador. But we wanted to build it as open source so we could give back to the community. So what we did is we uh, took one of our early career hires named Mick Cox. And then we hired two students, two interns, Eric Jenkins and Olivia Lafaro for 10 weeks to try to build an open source rover. They did not have experience with this at all. What we did is we carved out some space, basically in the office, and got the professional rover builders to be advisors. So we just kept cranking through it very, very quick and agile, designing it, building it, and then testing it, and then rebuilding it, redesigning it. In 10 weeks, this impossible task was actually possible. We, we did it and open sourced it. Now we had it built, had it ready. Now how do you tell the story? How do you get the story out there? So that was the other part. Remember, we didn't have really any money. This was kind of on the fly. So we found five high schools in the LA area in California, and we mentored them so those high schools could build these open source rovers. And then Mick and others went to work with them as they built it. The way we told the story was to normally what we would do if you go to www.jpl.nasa.gov. In this case, we just wanted to build a very quick landing page and then use the ethos of the open source to build the community. So we put the manual and the parts list and all that on GitHub, used a discussion board for people to discuss their designs, etc., and then be able to push back into GitHub the changes that they made. So if you wanted to go see it, it's called opensourcerover.jpl.nasa.gov. In the end, that was really about giving back and getting people to get that hands-on experience, which is hard to get in high school or robotics club. So by the time they come into JPL, they now have hands-on experience with the hardware side of engineering and building a robot. They have the science, they can put their own science experiments on, and they have the programming. And they had to work in a group to make it happen. We've gotten a lot of interest. People have viewed it in 204 countries. I don't even know that word that many countries. And it's currently being built uh, in eight countries. There's probably about 20 rovers being built right now, as we know of. So Tom, where has the rover been used? The open source rover is still pretty young. It was released in July of last year but it's already seen a lot of action. It's been in many, many hackathons. It's been in scout, meeting scout troops, been at JPL Open House, 
And it's been on stage in front of thousands of people at Amazon's reInvent, for example, where at one point it was used to control a diverse robotic swarm of other little friends, little robot friends. We demonstrated putting a robot arm on in real time from scratch in five minutes. And what's interesting, so it's seen a lot of action, but the people who built the rover also see a lot of action here. They were the ones that were telling the story in front of thousands and thousands of people. So it's wonderful that this is paying so much dividend and getting so much interest and experience for the people who built it. Now, what I think is so cool about this is that not only are you using this extremely innovative tech to train the next generation of leaders, you're also using the open source Rover data to iterate on your own models. Talk about that. Yes. We took some of these designs and changes and folded it back into the Rover. Now you have the citizen tinkerers, if I may make up a term, helping us to design our next Rover. And the original price tag for the parts list that we wanted was about $2,500. That would be affordable by a school to be able to build. Because this is not a toy. It, it's a real working rover. And we even had people already who's built it for $700, just putting different tools and motors and things like that on it. The rover now drives four times as fast as the original one. And it's much quicker and easier to build. And we even took the code since we're now using the open source, it's called a robotic operating system, we took that code and actually running it in some of our real rovers. Not on Mars yet, but that are crawling on the ice or even under the ice. Now we can use that as a platform to try out new things, artificial intelligence. So one of the things we'd like to see is having a deep conversation with the rover. So AI that is much more in tune with the person. So somebody should program that, I hope. One more on our way out. Tom, I can't help but ask someone like you, who's on the forefront of scientific discovery, what is your wild-eyed dream for the future of Earth and space exploration? I think, and now I'm going to go way out on the limb here, you know, JPL daring mighty things, I'm going to dream mighty things. I think that because of all the amazing new technologies that we have, including the cloud, where we can have as much storage, as much computing as we can handle, and with the new technologists that are coming, all the marvelous talent that are coming out of colleges and and the citizens these days, my dream is that we find life out there in my lifetime. And I think it's possible. We're going to Europa which is a moon outside of Jupiter. And there's big lakes in the ice. Could it have life? Perhaps. We're searching in other places and we are going to look for an Earth-like planet. Earth-like planet means that it has running water. We've found 26 Earth-like planets so far. They're pretty far away, they're not the galaxies. But a few years ago, we knew of none. From workforce development to preserving ancient, precious artifacts that tell the history of humankind, the cloud plays a key role in helping organizations advance their missions and changes how we think about the future. To learn more about today's guests, visit digitaldividedata.com and jpl.nasa.gov. And as always, thank you to our guests, Samir Reyna and Tom Soderstrom. And to our audience, a big thank you. If you liked today's episode, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for more stories. We'll be here on the next one.